Christianity is baffling, isn't it? Makes my brain hurt. I, people confuse me, I'm telling you. I stay in a state of confusion. It baffles me as to why it, there's more excitement over some knucklehead running a football into an end zone than there is about the church singing about the resurrection of Christ. It's baffling. How, how could you not lift your voice to the top of its lungs and sing, He arose? I mean, I, I, I honestly, I can't even comprehend how you could not lift your voice and sing. I'm trying to restrain mine where I don't look like a complete idiot, but I'm telling you, I don't understand how we cannot be excited about the resurrection of Christ. We come to church sometimes, I'm like, are we at a funeral or are we at church? I, I don't know which one we're at sometimes looking at faces. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Christ is not dead. Okay, all right, enough meddling. Acts chapter 2 is where we are today, verses 29 through 36, 29 through 36. Let's look at the text and let's jump right into this this morning. Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this one, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted, this is the ascension, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the He there is Jesus, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the last verse for this morning, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, has made Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ. Again, this Jesus, this one, whom you crucified. Old Testament gospel preaching. It's a short phrase on preaching. Preaching is done when the preacher knows his text, when the preacher believes his text, and when the preacher applies his text. I hope all of those things would be done this morning they are certainly done by the Apostle Peter in this sermon in Acts. I remind you of last week not to preach the sermon again, but I remind you because I still think there's people in this room that don't get it. And I know that the text is true, so whatever the problem may be, it's not within the text. So if the problem exists, it must be within the heart of man. And what am I referring to? 
I'm referring to the reality that David had faith. We believe that, right? I don't think anybody in the room is going to say, no, David didn't believe in God. I I mean, surely you just have to be a, a fool to say something so crazy. David had faith. Note, the same type of faith that we as a people claim to have. We believe what? We believe Christ. Surely every Christian in the room would confess, I believe Christ. Yes, that's my faith. All of my faith is in Christ. Great. If you believe Christ, then the text says of David that he had stability. Stability. We learned that the Greek word for stability means not willing to give up a loyalty. He, he believed Christ, he's loyal to Christ, and he refuses to look for another. Stable. I have, my, my faith, as our song would say, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. My faith is in Christ. That's where I'm resting. I'm loyal to Him. So what? That type of faith in every individual Christian produces something. A heart of gladness. Why do you not have gladness? Why is your heart not bubbling with gladness? Is the default problem your faith? Is the problem with God? If you believe Christ, your heart should have gladness. And that gladness that's in your heart should be evidenced by the looseness of your tongue. Because the tongue rejoices in Christ. That's what the text says. David believed. He was stable. His heart was glad. His tongue rejoiced. You say, well, David probably didn't have any problems. I don't know what Bible you've been reading. His son's about drove him crazy. This other guy's trying to kill him, throwing spears at him all the time. We could go on. The Philistines would kill him at the drop of a hat if they could. I mean, this guy's whole life is filled with problems, but he's got a heart of gladness, a tongue of rejoicing. You know how he lives? In absolute hope that one day he'll enter into the joy of his Lord and he'll have full gladness in the presence of God. Now, Some of you might be already checking out, but you have to consider that, and you have to take that and make it to yourself. Why is your heart not glad? You say, my heart is glad. Well, your face is negating it. Why is there not gladness? Well, because i got all these problems. You're focusing on the wrong thing. If you would put yourself in faith in Christ, there could be gladness in your heart to the degree that when we sing such a song, your tongue would loosen and you'd say, Hallelujah, the grave is empty. That's what happens with genuine faith. And you say, Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not. I've got hope. My Redeemer lives. That's what Job said. That's the position of genuine faith. That's last week's sermon. And now verse 29. He takes that Old Testament foundation. I don't want you to miss. He takes an Old Testament foundation. Joel and then Psalm 16. Gets his understanding of the gospel from the Old Testament. And now my first point is the shortest one of the, of the morning. Here's the explanation. He gives us an explanation in verse 29. Before we launch off into deep theology and the glories of the gospel, let's get some clarity on a couple of things. Verse 29, one verse only, just a few short words about this verse. Let's make it clear. David 
is not the Messiah. He's just not. David is not able to save you. David is dead. In our modern culture, David passed. Whatever that means, David is dead. His soul has gone to heaven. His body remains in the grave. David's body is still there, and I suppose if they dug it up, they would at least find the bones of the remnant of his body. Peter's just giving clarity. David is not your Messiah. Don't put your hope in him. And I would remind you of another psalm, Psalm 49, a favorite of mine, Psalm 49, 7 through 9. We must bear in mind this great theological truth. Man in and of himself can save no one, not even himself. Salvation is costly. It's costly. It's going to take more than mere man to pull it off. In Psalm 49, 7 through 9, the psalmist says this, Truly no man can ransom another. Pausing in the verse. That means, for the Catholics, the Pope cannot save you. It means Mary cannot save you. In the evangelical world, it means the prophet David can't save you. No man, mere man, could ransom another. Can't do it. Or give to God the price for his life. There's not enough merit in a mere man to give to God to be able to redeem another man. It's not possible. For the ransom, continue in Psalms, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We need someone greater than David. We need someone bigger than the Pope. We need someone a lot more powerful than that. We need a man who's also God in human flesh to make an atonement for our sin. It would definitely take a God-man to save us. And so I just remind you, before we move to point number two, I remind you, this is a problem for people. Do not put your faith in man. Don't give so much attention to men. Don't glamorize men. It's, you know, if I, I pick it on the Catholic Church, don't glamorize the Pope. If he don't repent and believe Christ, he's going to hell. I don't care who he is. He, don't glamorize the Pope. But I would also say to you this. Let's bring it home. Don't glamorize your pastor. I'm not that glamorous. I assure you, I can't save you. I assure you that if you want to become a Randall follower, it's not going to give you kudos in heaven. Let me just say this, even the celebrity preachers, there's people in our country in the, in the religious world that lost their minds over Paul Washer. Paul Washer's just not that impressive. I, he's just not. He's just a simple man. That's all he is. He's got faults, he's got failures, he's got shortcomings. There's some people can quote Paul Washer more than they can quote David. That's a problem. I don't know, maybe he's run his time and maybe he's not as famous anymore, but there was a day that was the case. And you know, I mean, personally, I kind of, you know, gravitate to, to John Cocoon, born in 1785. But I'm not going to glamorize him. He's helped me much, but he's not my Savior. He's helped me, but he didn't help me like Christ has. All I'm saying to you is this. In this explanation of verse 29, Peter is telling us, cancel all of this out of the way, and let's put our attention on one that is worthy to be looked to. His name is Christ. 
That's the explanation. Now, let's get into the exposition of the sermon a bit. Verses 30 and 31. Set your eyes there again. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Verse 31, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was a prophet. You know that because Peter tells us he was. David, being a prophet, knew what God said. Let me put it this way. He knew what the spoken word of God was. He believed the word of God. Because he heard the spoken word and because he believed the spoken word of God, it gave him a vision of the Son of God. God said, I will provide. I will send forth the Messiah. God, I hear you. God, I believe you. God, I see him in the future, in reality, coming, and I trust him with everything I have. This is what he says. David foresaw the resurrection of Christ. Now, this word foresaw, you may not have noticed, and I may not have brought it out very well, but if you look back just briefly at verse 25, in verse 25, David says concerning him, I saw. The word there, I saw, is the same word as verse 31, he foresaw. It's the same Greek word. It has two different definitions, but they're not at odds with one another. In verse 25 that we looked at, that definition there would be, he had Christ before his eyes. Think about that. 700-something years before Christ is born, David is looking into the future by faith, and in advance, he sees him. It's the eyes of faith. Then in our present verse, verse 31, we now find, <clears throat> I lost it, hold on. Then in verse 31 we find, to see in advance, to, to grab a hold of something before it happens. It gets a little bit more interesting. Paul uses this same word, the Apostle Paul. Talking about foreseeing, you've got to get this. Paul uses this word in Galatians. It's very important for our Old Testament gospel preaching here. Paul says this in Galatians 3.8. And the Scripture, Old Testament, the Scripture foreseeing, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. As clearly as the first five books of the Old Testament saw Christ and faith, that's the way David saw Christ and faith, this gospel of salvation from the very beginning. So foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand, before Christ ever came, God preached the gospel to Abraham. I don't know why this is so baffling in the church community. How the Old Testament people get saved? How do they know? Did they do this? Did they do that? This gospel is not different. Hebrews tells us it's an eternal gospel. This gospel was preached to Abraham. He believed the gospel, and he was justified, and that before he was circumcised. 
And I would also say in this regards to this word to foresee, we're dealing with the noun. But if you were to look up the verbal form, when the verb is used, you want to know how it's translated? Predestined. Predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Or he predestined for adoption. You, you see the confidence and the power. God determines something before it happens, and it happens. That's the word for David. He sees something in advance, and it becomes a reality in his heart because of faith. Is there anybody in the room that has this? That you, on the other hand, have looked back in history, and you say, I see Christ. Now, you've not objectively seen him here in the church. He didn't walk around the aisles. He's not personified in our very presence. But in the eyes of faith, you see him there in the garden. You see him there on the tree. You see blood coming down out of his body. You see the water spill forth. You see the crown upon his hands. You see his face marred. You see him there. And you see him that Sunday morning when he comes out of that tomb and he's resurrected with a glorified body and the whole world is shaking you. That is my Christ. I see him more clearly than I see anything else. This is what it means to see in advance and for us to see historically. But don't miss it. If you do see it, it has effects on you now. David, to move before we move on, one last short statement to make sure we're clear. Whether you believe me or not, that's your issue. But David spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Now consider the following. David had, David had Christ before his eyes. Faith. David saw in advance. This is revelation. God's revealed this. David is speaking about the resurrection of the Christ. I want to call your attention to what Peter does here. Because I think it's marvelous and beautiful. He's been led by the Spirit. But there's this change in the text. If you look at verse 27 and you look at verse 31, look at 27, you will not abandon my soul. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. He said, put in a tense, in the future. But then when you come to verse 31, he was not abandoned, nor did his flesh see corruption. He switches to the past tense. Why? To show the fulfillment of what David said. David said, this is what's going to happen. And then Peter says, this was. Past tense, completed, finished, accomplished. Everything David saw, all that he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, it's completely true. His body was not left. His body did not see corruption. And we all know this. Everybody in the room knows it. And I will give you one other word change. In verse 27, again, you see in the last line of verse 27, you won't let your holy one, it's one Greek word, regards to deity, regards to perfection or without blemish. So it's, it's, you can almost make that word spiritual, if you will. And I say that on purpose because some people want to spiritualize things that actually have a physical reality to them. 
So you see in verse 27, holy one, but when you get down to verse 31, you don't find that word again. Now when Peter exposits the text, he changes holy one to flesh. Not, nor did his flesh, nor did his body. Don't over-spiritualize this. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ died. Real blood, real water. He really quit breathing, and there is a real bodily death. There is a real burial with a real body and a real stone rolled in front, and he is left dead. That's ex- very important for our gospel because we have a bodily resurrection. So hope is bound up here. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, it's appointed for me to die. But there's another side. There is life after death. How do you know? Because I got eyes of faith. And the one I believe could not be held by death. Couldn't hang on to him. It was impossible. He couldn't do it. I'm not speaking Spanish. It was impossible to hold him. That's the hope. That's the life of the church. This is all of our hope bound up. Here's gladness of heart and rejoicing of tongue. Victory. It's greater than a touchdown. Hello, sink it in. This is more magnanimous than the Republicans winning the election. His body did not rot in the grave. David's faith caused him stability, gladness of heart, a tongue of rejoicing, and a future hope of gladness in the presence of God. Now, just to make sure you don't miss it, Watch what happens here. Peter, a man just like us, flesh and bones, Peter, listen, he reads the Scripture. He opens the scroll, and he reads Psalm 16. He studies his Bible. That's what Peter does. And he meditates upon David's faith. Wow, what amazing faith. And he takes the meditation on David's faith, and he makes it reality for himself. If David can believe, I can believe. If David can be glad, I can be glad. If David can rejoice, I can rejoice. If David can have hope, I can have hope. He meditates on those things and makes them reality for himself. It's the very same thing that we ought to be doing here in this church. Meditate on David's faith. Meditate upon Peter's sermon. And say, you know what? These things are available for me. I don't need a shrink. Regardless of what Christian Radio said this week, I don't need a shrink. And I don't need psychotropic drugs. My faith has found a resting place. If I want my heart to be glad, the answer must lie in Christ. If I want a tongue that has rejoicing instead of complaining, the answer must be in Christ. If I want to live if hope in this world, it must be in Christ because there's nowhere else it can be found. To make these a reality, they ought to have the same effects for us. Let me apply this in this way. There are commentators, I appreciate many of them, some I wish they had another name, but there are commentators, there are authors, there are some good authors, there's pastors, and some of them are good. <clears throat> but I think as a church body, and for myself, 
And maybe we should take the same statement that Martin Luther said back in the Reformation days. This is what Martin Luther said. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. I don't care what your commentator said. I don't care what popular Christianity says or Christendom and all of their writing. I don't care what John MacArthur says. I don't care what Paul Washer says. I don't care what anybody else out there might say about this subject. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Christ, the Gospel, was preached in the Old Testament, written in the New Testament. It's here before our very eyes, this eternal Gospel laid out in simple form. God's Word itself stands on its own, verifies the Old Testament Gospel the same as the New Testament Gospel. Let's make it simple. By faith. If any, please, man, if you don't know the answer, just don't even answer out, out there in the world. But if somebody says to you ever, from this point forward in your life, somebody says, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Either tell them by faith or just remain silent. Don't miss this one. Everybody that's ever been saved that will be present in heaven is because of faith in Christ. That's it. End of discussion. There is nothing else. Well, I gave you a hint that I was thinking about John Cocoon. And so let me give you this statement you've never heard. This is what he says. The gospel was wrapped up in profound secrecy. Profound secrecy. Until it was revealed from heaven. So he says divine secrecy until it's revealed from heaven and it was revealed by the Son of God. When? Immediately after the fall. That's when it was revealed. And we still have the same gospel. (laughs) Now I'll give you two statements in different ways. David said it, Peter preached it, and I believe it. I'll give it to you another way. David said it, Peter preached it, and it's true whether you believe it or not. It doesn't get any weight because I believe it. It's true because it's true. All right, exaltation, verse 32 through 35. 32 through 35. Look at the text. Bring your Bible to church. Open it. You don't have to charge it. You don't need an update. Just open the Bible and look at the words. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now we're going to quote Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Resurrection, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. The resurrection is central to the gospel. The resurrection is the hope of every believer. The resurrection is not mythical. It's not hypothetical. It's not fictional. It is verified and factual, and that based on hundreds of eyewitnesses. The resurrection is the exclamation point upon Christ's victory over death, hell, and the devil. Now, I know I keep referring to this, but I can't get out of my mind because people paint themselves and sit out in the freezing cold all day to cheer for some stupid game. And I'm like, 
The exclamation point of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ from the dead in a very real sense that ought to generate something in your heart. I didn't expect you to do cartwheels down the aisle. I don't expect you to jump over pews, and I'd probably rebuke you if you did. All I'm saying is that if you believe this, something within you ought to have a generation of joy, of gladness, of hope, of encouragement. My Savior lives ought to be a reality for you, even on Monday. The resurrection of Christ is a category all by itself. Be clear, Christ is not number one. He's not. He's the only one. No one else has come down and died and ascended back. When they call Roll, he's the only name. He's the only one. The indisputable uh, difference between every religion and Christianity, we have one who came down to rescue us, one who went back up and will gather us to himself. Every other religion is trying to work their way up. I was never strong enough to do it. I needed someone to come down and get me because I was too weak. Now, in verse 33 received. Look in verse 33. When he ascends back, he's exalted up to the heavens, and he receives. He's exalted at God's right hand, and he receives from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's poured out that you yourself, what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, you may have lost track because I'm too long-winded, and I'm fine. I understand that. So let me remind you, from verse 16 through 36, there's really two main points. That's it. Point number one is what? An explanation of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the main thing going on. The other thing that's going on is the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's the two things. Now, those two big subjects that happened here in verses 16 through 21 and 22 through 32, those two big subjects, explanation of the Spirit, proclamation of Jesus of the Lord, are now condensed into one verse. And in their verse, it says, he's exalted, Lord Christ, he's exalted, and he receives the Holy Spirit. So both of those things are put together in one verse. Both are tied together. Interestingly, if you go back to verse 17, just a note, I think it's important. If you look at verse 17, in the last days it shall be, what does it say? God declares. What's God declare? He declares that He, God, will pour out His Spirit. Do you see it? You see it? Say amen. Well, that's interesting because when I look at verse 33, I find that the Holy Spirit is given to Christ and Christ pours Him out. I see Christ doing the very same thing God said He would do as if God and Christ are equal. Right? The deity of Christ, and now here he is dispensing the Holy Spirit and pouring him out upon Pentecost. Strap that on your Jehovah Witness friend. Now, remember these things. Verse 34, verse 35. David didn't ascend. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel 
know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So remember, David is not the one bodily ascended into the heavens. Now, a commentator, I'll quote, says this, Jesus is the Lord on whom to call since he is the Messiah, resurrected by God in fulfillment of Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and now exalted to his right hand in the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. David, now we move on, David is the one having faith in the Lord, not vice versa. David is the one looking to the one who's enthroned at the right hand of God. David is looking to the one who conquers all his enemies and rules and reigns for all of eternity. Stretch your, your faith here a little bit. Not only does David foresee the death and resurrection of Christ, he looks farther than that. He looks all the way into the throne room after the resurrection and sees Christ seated on the heavenly throne as king of all kings, reigning and ruling over the whole world. I'm not dispensational, in case you don't know. As some preachers are, visited a church, and in the middle of the sermon, the preacher makes this statement. When Christ begins to reign, we got issues. Because if Christ isn't reigning, who is? Christ is always reigning, and now the inauguration has come, and Christ is seated at the throne. Faith in the resurrected Christ is the only means of eternal life. Faith in the resurrected Christ is the foundation, hope for our future. Now, to the end, verse 36, here is the emphatic application of the exposition. Now, you lose it just a tad. Let me capture it for you. Verse 36, find your place there. Here's God's Word. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. I just want you to understand that the word no is a command, not a suggestion. So we could say something like this, let everybody, everybody must know for certain these things. It's an imperative. Assuredly, certainly, intellectually, spiritually, don't try to live out Christianity in some Fog, if you will. Look, there's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I'm confused about. I'm still trying to figure out how uh, the, the greatest is, I can't even say it, how the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. I'm still trying to figure that one out. There's things I don't know. <laughs> but I'm not wondering about this one. This is what I know. <laughs> you ask me this at 3 in the morning after I slap you in the head. I'm getting the answer right. <laughs> I know Christ rose from the dead and he's seated at the throne and he's reigning over everything. I've got that. I must know this. Live in confidence. It's, I don't know this. I don't know that. Know who your Savior is. Every day you're beat down by your sin. Look to your surety. Look to the one who conquered your sin. Look, I am forgiven of what? Past sins, present sins, future sins, and every sin in my life has been paid for in Christ. There's victory in that. What is it that they are commanded to know? God has made him both Lord and Messiah, Christ Messiah. Lord, kurios, one who's in a position of authority. Christos, our Messiah, fulfiller of Israelite expectation, 
of a deliverer or the anointed one, the Christ. This is who he is. Jesus has always been both Lord and Messiah, but now his title is officially granted based on the completion of his death, burial, and resurrection. You could say this man was born a king, but there came a day of inauguration and he was declared king. Christ has always been king, but now here in this sermon, he's declared for the position that he's always had. Now, don't check out on me. This, this stuff is rampant in our society. So let me say it closely and slowly because Christian music today has just horrible theology. It's, it's hard to stomach some of the things that are said. So listen closely. You cannot make Jesus Lord of your life. You can't do that. God already did that without you. God said He is. You can have faith that He's Lord, but you can't make Him Lord. These unbiblical phrases sound like this. Jesus, Lord of your life. Today, Jesus, I've decided to put you in control. Give, give Jesus control. Let Jesus take the wheel. What kind of nonsense is this? Here's, here's one. Why don't you just let go and let God? I'm going to let God do something. You know how silly that is? That'd be like me when I'm 12, going into the living room and say, Dad, you know what? I'm going to let you be in control of my life. I don't know how that conversation is going. That just sounds remotely dumb to me. Look, that's not the way the Bible talks. He is Lord. You can't put him in charge. He is in charge. He's sovereign. You can submit. You can lay your life out and say, have control of me. Take over you. You've got it all. You're the commander. You're the chief. You're the boss. I'm nothing. But I can't make him anything. Now, let's make it real exclusive because we live in a world that wants to make everything inclusive. Let's make it exclusive this morning. Let's just stop with all the political jargon. Let's just narrow this thing down and make it really, really narrow. Look, Will, look at verse 23. This one. Singular, this one. Verse 32, this Jesus. Verse 36, this Jesus. Peter says, don't be confused. I am preaching Jesus, this Jesus. And you say, which one? What Jesus are you preaching? Hello, the one that you nailed to the tree. That's the one I'm preaching. That one that had the nails in his hands and in his feet. You remember the one you took the spear and shoved it in his side? You remember that bloodbath all over the ground? You remember all the weeping? You remember the sky turning dark? You remember that horrid day of crucifixion? That is who we're talking about. Nobody else. Only Christ. You should know this. Acts 4.10, whom you crucified. Acts 13.29, they took him down from the tree. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Galatians 3.1, he was publicly portrayed as 
crucified. I line myself with Peter and with David and all of Scripture, and I'm telling you, I'm preaching this Jesus, not another one. The one crucified on your behalf. Preaching, I believe, grants certain knowledge about Christ. Preaching causes men to take into account their own responsibility. Don't distance yourself whom you crucified. Your sin that he bears on the cross. Your hand is responsible for the crucifixion. Mine as well. Whom you crucified. Because of sin, he had to die in your place. Preaching, which doesn't always get done here in the sense of this, or at least it doesn't get exhibited sometimes. Preaching demands a response. Now I know we're going to leave and you're going to go about your own business. You're going to do your own thing. Preaching demands a response. I've preached faith in this Jesus. You ought to have stability. You should have gladness of heart, and your tongue should rejoice, and you should have some hope when you leave this room. And if you don't, then you responded the other way. You responded in unbelief. You didn't believe Christ. You still have no stability. You have no gladness in your heart, no rejoicing in your tongue, and you have no hope, and you go back to the same muck you were in before you were here. Respond and say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of my busyness. I'm sick and tired of all these things that I'm doing. I'm sick and tired of all these things draining me. I'm sick and tired of living a depression life and criticizing and being negative every day of my life. I'm sick of all of it. My pastor has told me that genuine faith would produce these things, and I want to be that guy that believes Christ with these effects. Christ was evidently set forth before the people by the preaching of Peter. And he's been set forth before you in the preaching this morning. Now, the unbelievers in this room must understand that your sinful life makes you accountable for Christ's crucifixion. When you recognize that, that it's your sin, and you see that, this is the gateway for saying, you know what? I need a Savior. I need help. It's my sin. Sin leads to death. Death leads to hell. And I need a Savior. And my pastor has preached Christ as the Savior. And that today, you would say, you know what? I'm sick of all of everything I've done. I believe Christ. Everything I've got, I throw in with Him. Christ is all my hope. Maybe you could respond like these people will respond. You know what they did later? We won't get there until next week or so. They said, brothers, what are we going to do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized as a testimony to your faith. And all of us others in the room who've been saved by grace through faith should be greatly encouraged because of what Christ has done for you. Don't ever lose that. Maybe you lost it along the way somewhere. You ever remember being giddy? Do you ever remember just being happy that Jesus saved you? Do you ever remember being forgiven? 
Do you ever remember when your conscience was right? Don't, don't lose that. You ever, you ever remember a day when you're driving the car and you found yourself singing, humming, whistling, and you're like, hey, what happened? I don't know what happened, but don't, don't lose it by missing Christ. Your gratitude should be exhibited in the way you live. Attitude of your heart, your undying love for your Savior. You would be encouraged that because of the life you received, you would live. Not, I'm going to live a certain way that I might get life, but because I've been given life, then I'm going to delight in living. Don't make this complicated. Let's say Jack does something nice for me. Whatever, he does something nice. Thank you. Is that not what we do? Unless we're like just evil. Somebody does something nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. We respond with gratitude. Right? Christ died for your soul. Forgave all of your sins. Adopted you into his family. And he says, everything I own, you become an heir to. Just think that it begs us of a response of gratitude. Like, I don't know, my whole life for him. Because he's been so good. Brother Jeff's going to come with his two infected blind eyes and try to lead us in a song. And again, I'm not trying to make something happen, but I did enjoy last week praying with a few folks. But as we stand and sing, I'll be here. Brother John's going to stand here. If you would like prayer, 